Great. Um, can you uh, switch across to that? Thank you so much. A really short reading, but a really pivotal reading. Readings don't have to be long to be good. Uh, words don't have to be verbose to have meaning and impact. And if you know the structure of Paul's book, you know, writing to these young Roman followers of Jesus who are trying to work it out in the middle of this turmoil which is called the Roman Empire, this empire that abuses people, puts people down, uses people all of the time, you'll know that Paul's big, big push, it underpins everything that he ever writes is, he's constantly saying, don't exploit, don't use, don't betray another person, every life has equal value. And so the first 11 chapters of everything Paul writes to the Romans is simply about that. Do not abuse another person. Every life matters just as much as yours. And he builds this giant theological argument, uh, which we find hard to understand, actually, because we don't know how Rome worked. Do you know when Paul's writing to somewhere we don't live? But he's, uh, he builds this giant theological argument from chapters 1 all the way through to chapter 11. And then in chapter 12, having done that, set it out, set out the theory, he then goes on to talk about the practice of how you do it. And these two verses that have just been read to us are the linking verses. They're, if all this stuff is true and the abuse and the putting down and the cheapening of life and the using of another person for your own gratification financially or socially or sexually or whatever else it is, using another person, which by the way you can do in marriage as well as outside of marriage, you know, so uh, 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 in all those ways. Um, so if all of that is true, this is how you should live. And this is also the last of um, four uh, talks that we put together, a little series. If you missed the rest, they're on. Um, you can listen back to them. Uh, lessons in love, transforming our stories, reaching our potential, uh, because that's what it's about. You could be forgiven, couldn't you, for thinking that Christianity is just a set of values that people or beliefs that people have to hold that makes God like them as opposed to everybody else that we assume he doesn't like. But God is love. God is all-embracing. God is love for every single human. No life matters more than another. I'm a Baptist minister. Not even a Baptist minister's life matters more than someone living in Aleppo today who's a Muslim person committed to a, diff a different set of goals. Every life is valuable. And the church has long, long, long forgotten that as it's judged and excluded people on because of this behavior or that belief. Humanity is one. God is the God of everyone, the universe. And it's about time the church woke up to that message. It would transform everything we do if we recognize that once and for all. That is the lesson in love. That is it. God is love and love never ends and love is extended to everyone even though they don't look like us and behave like us and for most of the time don't like hanging around churches singing songs and listening to talks like this one but God is love so that has some pretty far-reaching uh, implications and that's what Paul is talking about
He's saying, so once you got hold of this big thing, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, God's love for everyone, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. You got it, you've got the message, so now live it. You're the, you're the ones who have been privileged by understanding this for so many people don't know they're loved and they don't know they're cared for and they don't know they're in and they don't know that love never fails and they can't rest peacefully in God's arms because no one's told them that story. In fact, half the time, the church has told them they're excluded for some reason or the other. As um, you'll know, I've said before, it's amazing. If you study church history, if you look at Orthodox church history, Catholic church history, Protestant church history, Evangelical church history, Charismatic church history, Puritan church history, uh, Eastern church history, Western church history, you look at them all. It's an extraordinary thing that every group has a definition of the good news which basically includes them and excludes everyone else. It's an amazing thing how through life we've all built theologies that put us at the centre and God's love for us and God's exclusion on someone else. But God is love. Therefore, says Paul, I'm urging you, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world that judges, that that divides, that is tribal. No, choose a different way. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, I should stop there, really, and go, chew on that. You know, like, think about that. What is that going to do to the way we are? Now, some of you will know. By the way, I'm not going to stop there. That's rather disappointing, isn't it, Dior? (laughs) Rats, you go, flow. (laughs) Um, I'd like you to look at this. This first appeared on tube trains in London two years ago. Um, which is why it's set out like a tube line. School to prison line. Sent out of class, then you get a detention, then you get isolation, then you get a temporary exclusion, then you get a permanent exclusion, then you end up in a PRU, pupil referral unit, alternative education, then you end up in a YOI, a young offender institution, and then you end up in prison because you re-offend and you keep going round and round and round and round and round the loop. Or there's a different line which actually can start before you get sent out of class or after you've been sent out of class for the first time or after you got detention for the first time or after you've been excluded for the first time and it's called empathy, support success. Some of you this week would have listened to um, Ian Wright on Desert Island Disc. Did anybody do that? Yeah, some of you. If you've not, you should listen. Honestly, it must be one of the uh, best Desert Island Discs ever. So good is it that the BBC have already published an extended version of what he said. Now, I'm a Palace supporter and Ian played for Crystal Palace. And at the age of 21, um, in a right old mess, because of his school teacher um, and his school teacher's trust and belief in him, his life was turned around. 
And you should listen to, in fact, I'm thinking if I can be technical enough, I'm going to edit that bit out a bit and, um, and tweet it all around everywhere tomorrow as, as a way of um, finding Oasis staff for our schools because we need people like the teacher that he talks about. It's absolutely astonishing. So, what happens is, in the moment that we're shown empathy, things begin to change. Now, here's a little girl's face. What does, talk, turn to the person next to you, what does that little face portray to you? Go on, be bold. What do you think that little face portrays? Okay, so someone shout out. What, what do you get when you look at a little face like that? What do you get? Sorry? Defiance. Anger. Yeah? So she's got an angry face. Do you know why when we're angry we make a face like that? We make a face like that when we're angry because it makes us look stronger. It's a deep thing. It's about humanity. You look, an angry face makes you look stronger. When you smile, you look open. So an angry face makes you look stronger. Here is a lesson. All behavior is communication. All Every bit of behavior ever is simply a means of communication. Everything I do, everything I say, every expression, if I walk towards someone, walk away from them, it's all a way of communication. We can study it, watch David Attenborough's programs as he explains behavior in other mammals. We behave in the same way. All behavior is communication. So why did I show you that tube line to re-offending? Some of you will know it, that um, Oasis, one of the things uh, we've just been given the wonderful opportunity of doing, is becoming responsible for what was the, old, the oldest youth prison in this country. It was originally called Borstal. It's now called the Medway uh, Secure Training uh, College. It was run by G4S. Um, Panorama made a program. They were sacked because the suicide rate, the abuse, um, the uh, restraint. You can restrain a kid so that you're choking them. There were deaths that way. Um, the bullying, et cetera, et cetera. Some of you will know that in our prison system, the reoffending rate is really high. Some of you will know that in our youth prison system, the reoffending rate is the highest. In the first year, almost 70% of young people who were sentenced will reoffend and go back round on that loop forever and ever and ever and ever. Some of you will know that there are about one or two percent perhaps 3% of children in our society who are looked after, who are fostered. But this year, 49% of everyone in youth custody is looked after. F half, 
from 3% of the population. Some of you will know that if you're black, you're more likely to be in detention. If you're autistic, you're much more likely to be in detention. In other words, we take people who've been marginalized and we punish them for, that, for it. And having punished them for a while, we release them and we hope that it's healed them. Punishment does not heal. Punishment never heals. There's a lesson from Romans. God is love. Love never ends. God's not a punisher. The church has often invented stories to punish other people, to leave them out. But God is love. So here's an iceberg. It's a great picture because it just shows you exactly how much of an iceberg sits below the surface. So as Oasis takes on this um, prison, which we're going to call a secure school, and which um, Boris Johnson himself wrote into the Conservative Manifesto, so there we sit, Oasis, in the Conservative Manifesto, that we will launch the secure school, which will become the model for all youth justice work over the years. It's, it's, it's designed for us together to invent, to replace the entire youth justice system in this country over the next decade and beyond. Feltham, all of those things will shut and they will all become secure schools uh, in time. So get this done, what Boris says about it. Um, and um, we've got to get it done. But the point is this, the whole justice system in this country is a complete mess, as you know, as you all know. So what are we going to do to get it done? So this is what we're going to do. And I want you to apply this to everything. You know, it's easier to talk about other people than ourselves, which is why I'm doing it this way, <laughs> if you see what I mean. So here's a student. And he, it's normally a he, sometimes a she, comes to us because they've stabbed someone, because they've uh, been in, involved in drug, drug gangs, because they've murdered somebody, etc., etc. Serious offenders. So that's our student. And he or she comes to us. And our job is to work with them. This series has all, all been about who we are, changing our behaviours. And we've introduced that term therapeutically informed. You know, trauma, a trauma-informed approach to everything has become one of the kind of key phrases, and we've talked about it these, these last few weeks. You, you, you can't listen to the radio without somebody saying something's trauma-informed. All it really means is this. If you're trauma-informed, you know that all behavior is communication, and that bad behavior is communicating defensively. It's communicating pain. It's communicating rejection. It's communicating fear. All that trauma-informed means, and you hear it all the time, is that everyone behaves for a reason. 
All behavior is there for a reason. And we all behave badly sometimes for a reason. That's what it means. So our task is simply this, to work in this youth jail uh, when it opens with every young person, asking not the question, what's wrong with you? But what's happened to you? Tell me your story and not expecting that they can say, oh, okay, an opportunity to tell my story and say it. But they probably won't be able to articulate their story, have no language for their story. As we said last week in this series, you can't ex escape trauma until you find language for your trauma. But the problem is when I don't have language for what's happened to me, I can't articulate it, I can't understand it, I can't escape it. So building a relationship of trust with a young person which slowly allows them to find the language to unpack the crap that's happened in their lives and be set free from it takes a while. Which is why Paul says to these people who've lived in the Roman the heart of a Roman emperor, empire, which is has become this abhorrent place, the city of Rome. He says, be transformed by the renewal of your minds as you come to understand God's love, God's mercy. So we're going to work with our student, but here's the problem. The biggest problem in all justice systems, as you probably know, is the day you leave. It's like Whatever happens to you inside, there comes that day when they shove you out through the gates with 40 quid and they get somebody to interview you a couple of weeks down the line. You know, for young people, it's called youth offending teams. For older people, it's called uh, uh, probation officers. And perhaps you get uh, you know, involved with the social services. And the truth is that those systems, although they're great, they can't do the job. They can't do the job, they've not done the job. Everything fails. So how do we assist the youth offending teams, the probation officers, the social workers, all brilliant people, underfunded, trying to do too much? And we come to that perhaps in a moment, trying to do too much because other bits of society are breaking down and they're left to handle everything. How do we work to help them? Well. When the young person leaves, of course, the first people they meet are their peers, their gang. So while they're with us, we've also got to work with their gang. If they come from Birmingham, we've got to work with them in Medway, which is where Oasis Restore is going to be. That's the name we're going to give to this secure school. We've got to work with that young person, but we've got to work with his friends, his gang back there, because they're all traumatized as well. And their behavior is a way of communicating their rejection, their isolation, their lack of sense of purpose or identity or fitting in or being cared for or whatever. So we've got to work in the jail, not at, you know, it's got, it's got big fences around it, you can't get out. We've got to work with that young person and with their gang, their peers, but also with their siblings, their younger brothers and sisters, and also with their parents, if their parents are available 
and their parents are there. And also with their school or place of work for an apprenticeship with the GPs and with the social services and the yachts. We've got to work with all of those people and perhaps that's what's gone wrong with our justice system that it looks at the prisoner but we're all members of a tribe. It takes a village to raise a child and transformation is about a whole village, a whole community. Our task is also, therefore, to work with the wider community. And I'm not going to bore you now about how we're going to do all of those uh, things, but we're making some big plans to set up a system that not only works with young people leaving our youth jail, but as uh, we say in our discussions with, um, with the ministers responsible, we want to do this for every young person leaving every YOI, every youth detention centre, every, in every PRU, every kid who's out of mainstream education. So we're going to build that over the next um, few years. But the point of all of this is there's a balance. You see, we all have trauma. Trauma simply means crap happening. So yet last week we talked about what gets called ACEs now, you know, fancy terminology for everything to confuse everyone. But that simply means, ACEs simply uh, uh, refers to, um, uh, it, it refers to uh, an experience in childhood that's not done you any good. Do you know? An ACE is a childhood experience that traumatizes you. And, and people count the number of ACEs that you've, you've had, adverse childhood experiences. And they say, because there's loads of research, that the more you have, the more your life falls apart, the less able you're going to be to find a job, to hold down a relationship, the more likely you are to die earlier, the more likely you are to suffer from diseases, the more likely you are to overeat, the more likely you are to suffer from stress and anxiety, the more likely you are to be on antidepressants, the more likely you are to get involved in crime, etc., etc. In other words, what happens to you impacts you. Because all behavior is a way of communicating pain or joy or whatever. Yeah? So, some people have a load of terrible things happen to them in, in childhood and they do well. And people go come along and they say, huh, well, I, I lost my mother when I was four and I, I, uh, my, my parents walked out on me and I went to a dump of a school and I, but look at me, I'm fine as though there's some moral victory on it. There you are, I'm one of God's good guys, unlike someone else. In actual fact, we know it's all about a balance. So, I, like you, have had loads of horrible things happen to me in my life. But on the other side, I have what the psychologists would call lots of protective factors. So, bad stuff needs to be weighed against good stuff. And that's why... Rocco was dedicated because Ian and Lucy and Matthew and Abby and wider family and everyone here said, we're going to do this. 
we're actually going to care for this little lad. We're going to play our part as far as we can. And that becomes a massive contributory factor to protection. To have one person in your life, back to Ian Wright. Honestly, you should listen to that. I'm telling you, he, he cries as he tells the story of his South London school teacher. He doesn't just cry, he breaks down and is unable to speak anymore because this one man changed his entire life just through a bit of time. So, we're going to do all of this with Oasis Restore Network, as we're going to call it, because it takes a village. We're going to find ways of doing this. Now, Jim, who sat at the back, showed me this picture, or one like it, on Friday. Look at this bridge. Yeah, it's a nice bridge, isn't it? It's in Norway. Go see this bridge. Actually, um, you really would like to go see it. I'd like to go see it. It's... Um, I'll explain why. It's a very interesting bridge. In fact, they say that it's one of the most interesting bridges in the entire world. <laughs> it doesn't look that interesting quite yet, does it? But trust me, it is. Here's another bridge. It's in Africa. It's broken. The point is this. We all need bridges from our struggle and our pain and the stuff that goes wrong to get to the other side. We need the ability, we need to be given the opportunity to leave the struggle and someone, some people, something needs to span the difference for us, the gap, into something strong. And when it breaks down like that, the kid leaving detention or the person in the community who lives indoors most of the time and never comes out and doesn't socialize. The kid who's excluded, who has no friendships, they have no bridge to help them to a better place. The older person in the community who lives in the flat and then people wonder, well, what happened to her or him? And they've been shut in because there was no bridge for them. Now, back to this bridge. It's an incredible bridge, because here is another shot of the same bridge. It's a picture of that bridge. It looks like, drive your car up there and you're going to go off the edge, doesn't it? It's an optical illusion because of the way that the bridge was, uh, was built. This is somebody disappearing over that bridge. It's a strong bridge. There is the bridge in a storm with a car driving over the top of that curl. You don't see all that when you see this, but it's all true. The point is, to create a bridge for anyone involves inc an incredible amount of care and thought. It involves texting that person this week, sending them a note, it involves ringing them. It involves sitting down with someone to have a drink. Someone that you give yourself to because you care about them beyond your own interest. 
You see, that's Paul's whole point. In fact, some of you would have read my book, The Lost Message of Paul. That's all he's interested in. He just knows that God loves everyone, everyone's loved, everyone's in, and therefore we should demonstrate that love to everyone always, all of the time, by laying down ourselves self-sacrificially as Christ did for us in the first place. And in that way, we construct bridges for people. And we create protective factors in their lives. Now, we live in a society where crime gets out of control, where gangs are out of control, where everybody's worried about um, uh, violence reduction, where we hear about stabbings and shootings, where we hear about loneliness, where we're told that mental health um, uh, um, is on the increase, where social services are, I know, completely stretched and unable to care for so many of it. Uh, uh, people who need their help. I cannot believe that there is, there is not a person in this room right now who cannot tell a story about someone who fell through the cracks and there was no one to care for them and no one to pick them up until it was too late. Yeah? It's taken for granted, isn't it? We can all do that. And we can all go about blaming someone else and blaming budgets and whatever, but it's about us. And so I'd like to finish with just two um, ways of doing this. First of all, we need to take care of ourselves. Um, a, a strange thing happens is this, and I'm kind of used to this because of the number of schools we run around the country, but it will impact these new projects uh, we're thinking of, uh, we're going to set up. You know, what happens is you have a teacher and they understand their kid's trauma and they're compassionate and they're kind and they give time just like Ian Wright's teacher gave time but then what happens is it's the Friday before half term that wasn't this Friday it was the Friday before actually in other parts of the country um, half term's just about to start so last Friday it's the Friday before half term it's three it's half past two in the afternoon the teacher knows everything there is to know about being compassionate because, of, because all behaviour is just a way of communication. But it's Friday. It's the end of a long half term. They're tired. They're waiting to go away. They're going away for the whole of next week. They're driving off down to Cornwall or somewhere else. They're looking forward to that. They've had a long, hard week. There's been loads of marking to do. There's been there's been management meetings about next uh, term's uh, curriculum. We're look at the, you're looking at the GCSE predicted out, uh, outturn and you're thinking we've got to up it by half a grade here and half a grade there, etc., etc. And all that pressure is on. And there's work to do when you get home before you can finally go away because a week Monday is coming so quickly. And so under that stress and with all the tiredness and all the pressure, some little kick kicks off. All behavior is a form of communication. But that child's trauma just tips you over the edge. And their trauma traumatizes you. So the first thing we have to do is take care of ourselves. And I'd like to introduce you to Anna Coldwell, who's just going to come down. I'm going to talk to her for a moment or two. Give Anna a round of applause. Yeah. Anna. Uh, I, loads of you know Anna. Some of you won't know Anna. Um, but Anna 
you've, uh, you've trained as, I'm going to get this terminology wrong now, a, theric, a therapeutic yoga specialist teacher. Say it right for me and then tell me <laughs> what it is. I've not trained as a therapeutic yoga teacher specialist. <laughs> um, but I have trained in um, trauma-sensitive yoga or trauma-informed yoga. There you go. <laughs> trauma-informed yoga. What's trauma-informed yoga as opposed to bog-standard yoga? If you attend a trauma-informed yoga class, um, then I guess your teacher is aware that you are turning up to class with, you know, lots of things that have happened to you or could still be happening to you um, that the teacher needs to be really sensitive about. So within a trauma-informed yoga class, um, I'd be very aware of certain things that might trigger people. Um, certain positions, yoga positions, that might f that make them feel quite vulnerable. Um, and we focus a lot um, on helping people move from that state of fight and flight to that state of rest and digest. And so uh, you headed off with Andy, your, your husband and your children, to South Africa to work for Oasis doing this. So tell us about what, what you actually went to do and how this, what you've just said, works its way out in practice for people? Um, so yeah, so we uh, went on a kind of life adventure for about a year and a half um, and had the great opportunity of going to Oasis South Africa and volunteering our time there. And I worked with a team um, called Greenlight that specifically worked with um, sex workers or people forced to work in the sex trade. Um, so this was men and women and um, I practiced yoga with them on, on a sort of weekly basis and I worked with the teams that Oasis used to, who had come from the sex worker community, so they were ex-sex workers or still sex workers, um, and they went back into the community and helped the community of sex workers themselves, so kind of delivering HIV, AIDS, um, education, that kind of thing, health advice. Um, but my role within those teams was to help them deal with their trauma, really. Um, you know, these were men and women who had been raped repeatedly, who had ended up in their situations in life because of, just as Steve was saying, these terrible stories that they'd lived through. One of the ladies that I grew closest to in my time there, um, she'd jumped the border from Zimbabwe with her sister when she was 16 um, and been, had been kidnapped at 16 um, by two Zimbabwean men and, and held and kept capture. Um, and then from that, her life just kind of spiraled and she ended up in this very dangerous world of sex work. Um, so I was using trauma-sensitive yoga to help some of those people start to find ways of dealing with the impact of trauma on their lives. And so Anna, um, back, back here, uh, for us, you've, 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 described a well, you've described a situation in South Africa. Um, what have you got to say about us and for anyone who feels that they're stuck in a place, a moment, and they can't get out of it and they can't escape the past? So I guess um, yoga is a, is a great tool, whether you feel that you are somebody who's been through a lot of trauma or not, just for kind of us generally. 
not just on a kind of physical fitness and, and keeping well and you know there's lots of things like that that can that can make us feel better but yoga specifically um, really helps people move from that space of fight and flight to rest and digest it also gives people back a choice within their bodies so one of the hardest things as a yoga teacher is to get people to not just copy what I'm doing so as I'm at the front sort of you know moving this arm here and this arm here um, you know to get them to listen and engage with what is going on for themselves is really really powerful and if somebody has had their choices removed from them because of what they've experienced in life, then yoga is a great way um, yeah, of, of being able to, to find that kind of freedom a little bit again. Mm. And uh, we run yoga classes here, don't we? Yeah, we Every do. week? So yeah, on a, on a Monday, there's um, a beginner class at 6 p.m. and then at 7.15 p.m. there's a slightly faster one. And then we also run uh, classes for um, parents to bring children to. Mm. So uh, those classes take place on a Monday evening in here. Say the times again, 6? Six. 6 o'clock and 7.15. 7.15. And the, the stuff for parents and children? Is on a Wednesday at 10 a.m. at the Oasis Play Space. Mm. And you can find out more from uh, Anna about that uh, later. Yeah. Give Anna a huge round of applause. Thank you. So, Anna talked about uh, fight, and she talked about flight. And the point is this, as a human race, we're no good at either. Uh, I said this just a few weeks ago, but I want to say it again. Why has the human race survived? Because we should have been wiped out. We are clearly no good at fighting. I mean, when you think of our ancestors taking on woolly mammoths and lions and et cetera, et cetera, uh, with, with no guns and, you know, there they are. It's you against a woolly mammoth. Who's going to win? So we're no good at fight. We've never been any good at fight. And the truth is we can't fly at all. So we couldn't get away. We're not the fastest runners, as, as you know, a cheetah, a lion, a tiger, etc., 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 all a lot bigger, more ferocious, with bigger jaws, and faster uh, than Homo sapiens. So how did we pull it off? How did we do it? Why are we still here? The answer is this. Community collaboration. This isn't something I'm saying because it's a nice Christian thing to say and Christian pastors are supposed to say this. If you've got the time and the energy and go away and do a lot of study around this, you'll discover that all scholarship agrees the reason Homo sapiens survived was our ability to collaborate and work together. And in hunter-gatherer communities, uh, typically, they say, that we know this from archaeology, etc., etc., that a, a hunter-gatherer community would consist of all age groups, um, but about 50 people. And some of the tribe, the extended family, would go out, do the hunting, hunt the woolly mammoth, and the rest 
of the community would care for the children and care for one another, etc., etc., etc. And that's how it survived. In fact, the expert sociologists working with uh, anthropologists and working with the archaeologists tell us that they know that they can tell just from what we've got left in the ground that the care system for children was about 16 to 1. So you'd have a parent and you'd have aunts and uncles, etc., etc. Yesterday evening, Kesawa and Agogo, who are here, and Yar at the back. Yar's mother, um, Esther, um, died a few weeks ago. And um, we announced that to you. Um, Esther used to be a leader of the, in the church here. And uh, we had a wake for Esther, um, who died in her 80s. And yesterday evening, Yar and Esther and Agogo, myself and Danielle uh, were here. And how many people were there, Esther? 200? 150? Yeah. Who all came, not for the funeral, but just to sit and talk about Esther. It was full up. From six till ten. That's what you call extended community. The funny thing in our culture is we say that's extended family, whereas we have family. But of course, we've got shrunken family. We call um, traditional families extended. But that's a piece of kind of Western arrogance, isn't it? Because it's not that other families are extended, it's that we've shrunk our families down. So, 16 to 1. But when you send your child to um, nursery, um, the ratios, if it's good nursery, around 4 to 1. And then by the time they're six, it's, um, it comes down further, etc., etc. And by the time they're in secondary school, it's about two to one. With grandparents and aunts and uncles flung across the world. So this isn't to bemoan life and say, we've got to get back to the past. It's to say that we have to rethink community and that's what church is. It's that extended family, that extended community that you need to be able to rely on. But in order to rely on an extended family, you need to be there in order for others to rely on you. I always say, you would have heard me say before, the moment I most need community is the moment when I feel I least need it. When I'm tempted not to show up, that's the moment I need to show up most because that becomes another protective factor in my life. Anna's talked about yoga. Daniel talked about Lenten fasting. I do hope you'll look at that little card one way or the other. That's a protective factor, to be quiet, to be still, to recenter ourselves, to belong to community. That's protective factor and here's the last thing though we read this Romans to us because we are so addicted to individuality we cannot read things in their basic context that's why I've written on the front Paul to the young Roman church 
Therefore I urge you. It's not me, it's us. Paul's saying, I urge you as a community in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This is what worship is. Showing up for one another. Standing alongside one another. Washing one another's feet. Going the extra mile. Giving to one another. This is worship. And singing songs together is good as well because singing's good. But singing isn't worship. Singing can be worship. Worship, according to Paul, is when you give yourselves to one another. Do not conform to the pattern of this world with its individualism and its tendency to abuse other people for your own gratification, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind in community. That, I put it to you, is what Oasis Circle of Inclusion that we put in all of our churches and all of our schools and will feature in this wonderful, secure school. We put it everywhere because we're all in and we all work for one another. Let me pray for you. Lord, we thank you again for this morning, for the dedication of little Rocco, for a reminder to us that we are family, extended family, community. We pray in this moment for everyone here who feels that they've been forgotten, left out, that they can't tell their story, that it's locked inside them. If that's you, feel God's closeness in this moment. Feel God's love and know that you're enough. Know that you're loved. Accept that you're accepted. And for each one of us, this is a challenge to listen to another, to look at another, to see another, to invest in another. Lord, renew us through your mercy and your love that we might become more and more the people who exhibit the truth that we already live in. This is our prayer together. Your love has redeemed us. Your love, we know, redeems the world. Amen.